listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The legislative session is moving toward the first deadline where bills cross over from one house to another. We look at where bills having to do with Native Hawaiian issues stand at this juncture. HBR's Ku Vehirishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I've been looking at three legislative proposals throughout this session that have really stood out. One, a measure pledging the $600 million to the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands, which we've all heard about uh, during opening day of the legislative session. Uh, Two, a bill to usher in sort of a new era of management on the summit of Mauna Kea, which had a huge hearing this past weekend, and three, a proposal to settle long-standing issues over the Office of Hawaiian Affairs share of that public uh, land trust or PLT revenue. So I'll start with the OHA bill just because it, it got some movement yesterday. Uh, Senate Bill 2021 passed out of the Senate Ways and Means Committee with a few amendments, and we'll get to that. But for folks who might not be familiar with the PLT, the Public Land Trust, also known as Ceded Lands, we're talking about 1.8 million acres statewide that's leased by the state uh, with revenues directed toward five different purposes, one of them being the betterment of the Native Hawaiian people and that is the funding mechanism for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. For the past nearly 40 years, there have been conflicting views over the definition of revenue, right? And so in many instances, some of that revenue that was being brought in by, say, uh, UH, University of Hawaii is on, public land trust, there's also the airports, hospitals, Um, each agency has sort of figured out, okay, we're going to count this and not this. We're going to count. There's no standard or uniform reporting procedures, and that's kind of been at the the heart of the issue. And so Senate Bill 2021 really aims to, uh, one, set up a negotiating committee to talk about these differences. Uh, Two, it'll transfer what's uh, currently called overpayment. So these are PLT revenues that's been withheld by the state over the last 10 years. According to OHA, we're looking at $638 million, but we're not sure what that's going to be in the end because, as I mentioned earlier, those calculation conflicts uh, may lead to another number. Uh, But the bill also sets up uh, the $15.1 million a year annual payment to OHA in the interim. Um, and uh, that bill is seen some movement. It will uh, need a final vote on the floor, uh, but that should uh, be taken over to the House very shortly. Now for the DHHL uh, $600 million infusion, you know, as, as we mentioned, uh, reported on in the past, it was unexpected, but because of the budget surplus, uh, we will likely be seeing that move along. Leadership in both chambers have expressed or indicated their intent to support this bill uh, of giving this one-time lump sum to DHHL. Uh, so it's just a matter of scheduling at this, at this point. It's got uh, one more hearing. The Senate Bill 3359 is awaiting hearing by Ways and Means. There's also a House component, uh, which is also waiting for their money committee to hear it. And now perhaps the most controversial of the three measures uh, we're discussing today has to do with Mauna Kea and a bill to create a Mauna Kea stewardship authority. House Bill 2024 would essentially uh, strip away that management authority from University of Hawaii and uh, create a new authority made up of uh, nine individuals and all the requirements and what they're looking for in the members who would be a part of this authority is in the bill. But one sort of component that people were a little surprised about not having on the stewardship authority uh, was uh, anyone from the astronomy world. And so we did hear, you know, there's no voice for astronomers on this nine-member committee. That was a big bulk of the opposition. Uh, astronomer Thane Curry expressed his, uh, his opposition to the bill at the recent testimony. Astronomy on Mauna Kea is a valuable resource for the state, generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue per year. Mauna Kea is the best site for astronomy in the Northern Hemisphere. It is a blindingly obvious stakeholder, and so it is inappropriate, in my personal opinion, for astronomy, either directly or through reach, to not have strong, well-represented voices in management of Mauna Kea, not just simply being an advisory group. As the bill is written, they've got an advisory group in there, but this bill uh, was heard over the weekend. Decision-making is scheduled for Wednesday. Right, but uh, yeah, obviously that is a concern. You want um, 
make sure it's kind of evenly distributed and, and you have a voice that's going to be heard. Right, and I think we might we might see an amendment along those lines to include a, a voice for astronomy in this bill, at least to make it a, a bit more palatable. But both UH and DLNR uh, also are uh, opposing the bill. Right, so on we'll those grounds or, or others as well? On other grounds of it being complicated, but also uh, arguments over the constitutionality of race-based um, sort of requirements for members of this uh, new authority being Native Hawaiian. Okay, so uh, we'll see what happens next week then. Yes. All right, but thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi about bills proposed this year to advance Native Hawaiian issues. delegation of Hawaiian community members returned from Germany and Austria earlier this month after the successful repatriation of 58 sets of human remains, or Ivi Kupuna, from five different museums. The effort was backed by the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and spearheaded by longtime advocate Eddie Haleoloha Ayao. He spoke with the conversation's Savannah Harriman Pote and said the trip went well, as one could hope for with aloha on parts of all the parties and clear weather the whole time, a small miracle for winter in Germany. But I said there was a long and difficult journey leading up to this trip, which actually began 32 years ago when he found out that past curators at the Bishop Museum had sent Hawaiian remains to institutions around the world. And so we started writing to the British, and over time, those the information we gathered there ultimately led us to other, many other countries, including Germany and Austria. We had a long-standing case in Germany, in Dresden, that took 26 years to resolve from the date we first asked to when they finally repatriated. It was 26 years. And during that time, we researched other museums and institutions in Germany and were able to identify the ones that we repatriated from on this trip. And what do you credit to the different reaction the reaction you first had when you raised this issue 26 years ago to the successful repatriation of Ivi Kupuna from Germany just in the past couple of weeks, do you feel like there's been a sea change in how people yes. approach and understand this issue? Um, it's actually happening at, at, at a really high level in Germany where the Germans are coming to terms with their colonial past They've already come to terms with the history of the Nazis, and now they're embracing their colonial actions, especially in Africa. But as a result, you know, there's this, this groundswell of support for Germans to come clean and, and to acknowledge the you know, past uh, misacts done in the, in the name of science and colonialism, such as you know, stealing ancestral Hawaiian remains from Hawaii and taking them back uh, to Germany. And, and the need to you know, be, uh, come forward and, and be forthright with what happened, and to acknowledge, and then to you know, seek atonement for these past actions and accept responsibility for them. We saw in four cities in Germany this real willingness to reveal this, this ugly colonial history, but you know, more importantly, to, to also express the courage and willingness to reconcile. You know, so the way we described it is that the German people were expressing their aloha to us in the form of repatriation and and really supporting our effort to, to bring them home. We brought home 58 of them, and there was only four of us on the trip. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it was challenging. And how do you feel that sentiment compares to reactions you've gotten when you've submitted similar requests to institutions in the United Kingdom or even in the United States? It's come really far. Uh, when we first started, the attitude was very antagonistic. Some directors would, would tell me to stop writing to them, that they were offended by the request for them to turn over what they considered their legal property. They referred to our ancestors as osteological material that they owned. You know, they're really childish 
because they were refusing to recognize you know, our Hawaiian humanity and that, and how harmful their, their comments were to us because they had effectively dehumanized and objectified our kupuna. And by doing that, they were effectively dehumanizing us. Uh, and, and it took a while uh, for the, the next generation of leadership, if you will, to take over these museums and for those attitudes to change. And what do you think about here at home? This was a delegation that was sponsored by the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Do you feel like they are doing enough to support this effort, and how have attitudes changed there? It's been an interesting relationship with OHA over the years. At times, they were you know, very supportive. At times, they were not. It all depended on um, who were in the leadership positions and you know, what they were facing politically, perhaps. It's kind of awkward to call us a delegation because that means somebody delegated this to us, but that's not the case. OHA was the applicant because they had standing internationally, but we uh, we went there as committed volunteers to, to carry out a responsibility that all Hawaiians uh, have. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to, to really answer that question because I'm not in OHA, I just hope that they continue to see this, uh, to prioritize the restoring of our ancestor foundation and that they would actually commit resources for us. Because even though you said sponsored, um, they didn't sponsor us financially. Uh, we did that ourselves. But they have in the past, like I said, so it's, it's sort of hit and miss. The point is that through their international standing, the cooperation and support we got from the United States State Department from its embassies in Berlin, Leipzig, and Vienna, and in the cooperation of the German government, including all of these individuals, most of whom are private institutions, but some are, some are public. That's what made this happen. People from different cultures recognizing and respecting each other's respective humanity. That's what made it happen. Many Eevee that are outside of Hawaii are in spaces like museums where they're treated as artifacts rather than ancestors. Yes. In the decades that you have committed to repatriation, is there one particular discovery of an Eevee Kupuna? As you said, you have to actively hunt for them in a particular space or associated with a particular lineage that has been special in your work. You know, let me just clarify. When we say ancestor, we don't necessarily mean an old person. So some of the Eevee we brought back were those of children. So in that regard, probably the one that was the most special that stands out because it was probably the most hurtful was, um, was when we repatriated the remains of a, a mummified baby. Um, because it just I just stood there and I couldn't believe somebody would go into a cave and remove an infant who was preserved by her family um, and, and, and stole her and sent her to a museum in, in, in Philadelphia. I just could, could not believe someone could be so evil and, so, and just disregard the sensitivities of the family to steal a child. I think that probably stands out in my mind as one of the most special because... The elder who was with us, um, you know, he, he he took her out of the box and he held it the whole way. And we had Hawaiian music playing on the radio in the car. And he just sang to her like uh, she was his mo'opuna. And it just shows, like, the aloha that we have and the value that we place on ohana, on family. And, you know, I, I just remember seeing that and realizing that there are other examples at, in other museums and, we had to go find them, especially when they're that young, um, and, and, and bring them home and so that they, they're not afraid. They don't lose faith in, in the current living generations that we've lost connection with them. I always say that the, the worst part about this work is that there's really no way for us to gauge how well we're doing. Like, we have no idea of how many Ivikupuna got taken, and as a result, you know, so when we did Vienna in, in Austria, the last of the five on this trip, it represented the 128th formal case that I've worked on. So I don't know if that means we're doing well or if we're just scratching the surface. 
That was Edward Halealoha Ayao talking with the conversations Savannah Harriman Pote about the recent repatriation of Ivi Kapuna from Germany and Austria. Some museums across Europe are rethinking their collections following the passage of NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, decades ago. It sets up a process for human bones and certain cultural items to be returned to Native peoples. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua. In today's Backyard Quiz, we take a trip to the end of the road, the end of Highway 270, that is, located in the district that was also the birthplace of King Kamehameha I. This destination on Hawaii Island is known for its strong winds and black sand beach. From the lookout at the top of this landmark, you'll see a wide, flat landscape of pebbly beach, ironwood trees, muddy streams, marshes, and thick how forests a thousand feet below. A short hike will take you down to the floor of this location, and in the 1800s, rice was cultivated there, and a type of taro named after the valley was once abundant. So what is the name of this place, and in what district can you find it? The answers are coming up later in the show. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Our reality check today is about the sometimes messy process of redrawing voter lines. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell joins us. Hi, Blaze. Hey, morning, Catherine. So you covered the um, uh, Hawaii Reapportionment Commission yesterday. Yeah, and so we've been following this process since, you know, pretty much April of last year when it began. And you're right, it's definitely a messy process, mm-hmm. and it's about to get even messier uh, in a few minutes, in fact. A group of residents, uh, they're going to announce that they have uh, filed a petition with the Hawaii Supreme Court to basically overturn these final maps that the Hawaii Reapportionment Commission uh, had drawn up. And these maps are like where the legislative boundaries are. So they tell you, you know, who your your lawmaker in the House will be, who your senator in the Senate would be, and things like that. And they were warning that they might go to court over this because they weren't real happy with um, how the, the lines were drawn initially. Yeah, so a group of citizens have been warning the commission for quite some time now that, you know, this very thing could happen. Initially, you know, a lot of residents in Manoa were chagrined because it would divide that valley in two. And for a long time, you know, the Manoa neighborhood's always been its, its own legislative district. Uh, then there was this issue of uh, House and Senate districts that include Waimanalo and Kailua. Uh, a lot of them would come around Makapu'u Point and then capture part of Partlock. And so the residents in Hawaii Kai and Kailua and Waimanalo, you know, they felt like each neighborhood's voice could be diluted where if you combine the districts in that way. And that, you know, one of the broad concerns that the citizens group is bringing up to the court is that depending on how these lines are drawn, you know, it, it, they, they could start to dilute 
um, the voices of the residents in, in, in you know the in affected areas. Well, there is a sense of urgency because March first, which is I think like what Monday, uh, Tuesday, uh, is when candidates can start um, filing their papers, right, to run for office. Yeah, it's really soon, and the the lawsuit was just filed yesterday afternoon, and we haven't heard much from the state yet about it. Uh, but the the residents' main argument is that the final maps. They don't follow this constitutional requirement that says two House districts should be able to fit into one Senate district. And for the first time, that's pretty much possible because, you know, the Big Island, Maui and Oahu all have an equal number of House districts because of the way um, some of the seats have been moved around because of our different population counts. But to your question about, you know, what's going to happen next, depending on how and when the Supreme Court rules on this petition that the citizens have brought, you know, it could start pushing back a lot of processes for the campaigns. As you mentioned, March 1st is the candidate filing deadline. Uh, Even that's kind of thrown into question now with this new legal challenge. And, uh, you know, as you remember, the um, the elections are already in August. And so depending on how far this gets pushed back, uh, a lot of the candidates know, may not know which which they have to run for yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. You know, I did reach out to the Office of Elections early this morning, and uh, uh, Scott Nago, the officer there, uh, basically said that, yeah, he wasn't sure what was going to happen and if, you know, they were going to ask for an expedited uh, decision on this because, you know, his back is up against the wall. And so, you know, people need to know, you know, where the lines are. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, while the court is sorting through this legal issue, the legislature is also going to be looking at this other topic of how to count uh, non-permanent resident military personnel and their dependents. That was an issue um, the last time the commission was sued in 2012. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, your article points out that we're like the only state that carves what military and students out, right? We are. What the legislature is proposing is just going back to the old way of counting and just saying, okay, here's the number you got from the census. That's the number you're going to use to reapportion. Right now, we're the only state that decided uh, that we need to only count, quote-unquote, permanent residents. And so we're supposed to be removing military personnel, dependents, and out-of-state college students. But the process... You know, it's really wonky. The data is inconsistent, and it doesn't always work. And I think that's why lawmakers are taking another look at it. And you haven't heard anything more from the commission, huh, reaction on this? Not too much. They met yesterday uh, and made some recommendations. They want to change meeting times to accommodate the public. They wouldn't make a decision on whether or not to support the constitutional amendment on the military extraction process. And they're hopefully looking up at ways to make the process more transparent. All right. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned, see what happens at noon. <laughs> but thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Blaze Level. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Sierra Club of Hawaii for 50 years working to help protect the island's water, air, and ecosystems. The Sierra Club of Hawaii receives support from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice, sierraclubhawaii.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Paul Levy, author of Watiko. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about healing the mind virus that plagues our world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection. HonoluluMuseum.org. In the summer of 2020, 10,000 people gathered virtually for Crip Camp, a disability revolution. It was a throwback to the 1970s and Camp Janet, a camp in the Catskill Mountains for what was then called the Handicapped. 
It became the subject of a Netflix documentary that some call the Woodstock for People with Disabilities. The film garnered an Oscar nomination and was a Sundance Award winner. Many point to it as a turning point for disability activism. Take a listen to the trip. A small army of the handicapped have occupied this building for the past 11 days. So many people from Camp Jeanette found their way into the building. The FBI cut off the phones. The deaf people went, we know what to do. That's how we communicated to the people outside the building. The Black Panther Party would bring a hot meal. We were like this. We are the strongest political force in this country. We will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. saw at that camp was that our lives could be better. And disability advocate Judy Human was featured in that film. She will be the keynote speaker at a conference next week put on by the Pacific Rim and Center on Disability Studies. We talked to Kariko Takahashi, interim director uh, of the Center on Disability Studies, about the theme, Mobilizing for Action. We really wanted to focus on taking an action and not just discussing or thinking about it. It was a three-part theme that started from two years ago. We want everybody to start taking an action, even at like their small personal level to community level to state level. And we have invited our keynote speaker, who is Judy Human, and she has been an advocate, long-time advocate for the rights of people with disabilities. Um, some people call her the mother of advocate for people with disabilities because she has been in this role for so many years, and she is well-known um, in the disabilities field internationally and within the United States, and she is really at the forefront demonstrating how to be an advocate for everybody And it's not just about people with disabilities, but other vulnerable population as well. And we're very pleased to have Judy as our keynote speaker, highlighting our theme to mobilize for action, because she really resembles that, and she's living what it means to mobilize for action. At the same time, we also have the closing plenary. We've invited Kathy Jetnil Kitchener, And she is from the Republic of Marshall Islands. And again, she has been a climate change advocate and she has been very active in speaking for her community and about the need to do something. She addressed the United Nations Climate Summit in 2014 to ensure that people understand and actually do something and not just talk about it at the political level, you know, and just have the discussion. But something has to be done in order to save the islands. And, of course, climate change, it also involves people with disabilities and vulnerable populations. So we really wanted to highlight that it's not an issue for people without disabilities. It involves everybody. So she is a really a great to represent our conference as well. So you've got some shakers and mm -hmm. and movers attending this conference. The um, trailer that I saw online that Judy Heumann produced, and and that was nominated uh, for an Oscar. The Chris Kemp. Yes. She was uh, in that documentary where her life was featured. She used to participate in this camp, Jeanette, as a counselor, and she, you know, all the people with disabilities who would get together and be able to be free and do what other people will be typically doing. And under no, like, supervision, right, they will be able to discuss and come up with ideas. And really that shows that they were given an opportunity to talk about you know, on their own and make decisions. And a lot of the advocacy work has really incubated at that campsite. And Crip Camp highlights the activities that they did or Judy participated in. Do we have a good handle on uh, what our population here, our community is, you know, uh, folks who may be living with a disability? When we talk about disability, we talk about all range of disabilities. So people with physical disabilities to health issues 
to hidden disabilities like learning disability and attention deficit disorder and psychiatric disorders. So it's a really wide range of disabilities. And in anywhere, uh, well, in the United States, it's estimated that anywhere between like 12 to like 25% of the population have some form of disability. So we are talking about a large proportion of people who may consider themselves as having a disability. And as far as, uh, I guess, the resources that are out there or some of the, maybe the platforms that uh, the center is working on, housing is a big deal here right now, just the lack of housing, affordable housing. How does that work, you know, for the disabled community? Oh, it's much worse. (laughs) I mean, it is very difficult. There aren't many options for housing for people with uh, disabilities, especially for people who may have intellectual and developmental disabilities. They might not know that their rights of being able to live independently or, you know, they want to be able to live near their own community where they grew up and that there is a natural support, but oftentimes these housing that may be available are not really close to their community areas, and that's a huge issue because then they will be alone and don't have that natural support, you know, your friends and family who may be around. And housing is a huge concern for a lot of aging parents who have adult children with disabilities and knowing that they may not have a place to live and get a support. So we do have on Saturday, February 26th, we do have a discussion on housing as part of the conference, but also people who may not want to participate in the whole conference can also just participate in this pre-conference event. And are there any bills pending uh, at the legislature this session that would help in that area? Yes. I think there are a few different housing bills that uh, people are working on, especially the State Council on Developmental Disabilities. They're focused on supporting the housing bill. We will be talking more about the housing bill and how people can support it, uh, also the session that we have on Saturday. That was Kariko Takahashi, Interim Director of the Center on Disabilities, uh, which is putting on the conference, which starts on Monday and features some 60 sessions. It's not too late to sign up for the virtual gathering. You can check our website later for links. Is your eyesight not what it used to be? Well, we all know that that can make things like reading, shopping, or cooking difficult. Vision impairment affects millions of Americans, including more than 25,000 here in Hawaii, according to the American Foundation for the Blind. As part of Low Vision Awareness Month, we spotlight the Hawaii Association of the Blind. Uh, It's a nonprofit that advocates for the blind and visually impaired in our state. HPR's Dave Lawrence spoke with HAB member Tony Vega about the upcoming state convention. First, explain to folks who you guys are and also the national affiliation that you guys are associated with. Sure. Um, So the Hawaii Association of the Blind has been active now for more than 50 years here in Hawaii. And, you know, we we support the local community of people with visual impairments and uh, we advocate and we we just provide support both within the community and, and the larger community as a whole, not just people with visual impairments, but we are within the American Council of the Blind. That's the national organization. And Mm -hmm. we are the state affiliate. And when you mention the ways that you guys support people who are blind or who have Mm -hmm. vision disabilities, name some of the things, because there are maybe folks out there who, who are unfamiliar with the kinds of needs that someone might have, or on the flip side, the kinds of services in particular or ways of support that you do offer. Sure. Um, well, I'll just start with the the kind of my doorway into the organization, Please. which is, of course, scholarships. I came to Hawaii to attend graduate school at the University of Hawaii and the Hawaii Association of the Blind helped me out with a scholarship throughout the entire time that I was studying here. And that was extremely helpful. We've had other 
members around college age that have also benefited greatly from our scholarships. We also have helped with training. For example, we did recently an excursion to a mall. We gave young members debit cards so that they could practice shopping. Wow. We've also helped with mobility training, like scholarship programs within our, our organization. Also donations, helping local teachers that work with children with visual impairments. Also just helping out in the community as a whole, attending conventions, donating to other organizations, maybe like the Salvation Army, things like that. We try to be active in the community, both helping the people with, with visual impairments, but also showing all the things that we're capable of and helping get the message out that we are here. We can do many things. Come check us out, see what we're doing. You'll, you'll get to see all the amazing things that we're working on. Is part of that package of so many different bits of outreach and me- methods of support is also some of that working to advocate at the ledge uh, when it comes to the bigger picture of disability rights, laws, regulations? Absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the big things that sparked the creation of the organization, you know, like I said, more than 50 years now, was that sort of thing, you know, going to the legislation, making sure that we are not forgotten in Mm. terms of the legislation. But even now today, we're still active with that. You know, members will go give testimony, write letters, have our voices heard. You mentioned getting a scholarship. How long have you been part of the HAB? I became a member in 2014. I uh, came to Hawaii to attend the uh, graduate school program of the um, Japanese Language and Linguistics Department. Wow. At the University of Hawaii, I applied for a scholarship at the American Council of the Blind, went to their national convention. And through that, I came to learn about the Hawaii organization. I I met the now president. I met um, Landa Falan, who I know you've interviewed before. Wonderful, wonderful Landa. They were extremely, extremely helpful in helping me get set up here in Hawaii. And the scholarship, of course, the financial assistance was was great. And and that's extremely welcome for a poor grad school student. But also just becoming a member of this community has also been a wonderful experience, getting to know all the members, the social aspect is of course wonderful but also knowing that my things like even this today you know is making a difference perhaps you know letting people know what we're doing and and helping out certainly and uh and so you yourself if you don't mind me asking are you blind or you have a vision disability then i am legally blind so i have essentially a, a big blind spot in the middle and basically i use um peripheral vision and you guys, that's one of the things that kind of separates your organization uh, and National Federation of the Blind. Many of the blind advocacy organizations actually made up of people who are dealing with the disability as opposed to many other great n- great nonprofits. They often have people who are fantastic PR people or, or representatives, but not necessarily dealing with those challenges themselves. So that's one of the things that makes you guys very special. You mentioned, of course, Londa, mm-hmm. so that's why I throw that in there. And uh, so when we think about the uh, event that's happening here and in terms of guests that are going to be speaking at this and mm-hmm. then the different kinds of functions throughout the day, instructions, resources. Definitely. So, of course, normally we would have it in person, but, you know, for obvious reasons, we, we can't do that. But, right. you know, now second year in a row, we've done it virtually. And this year our theme is traveling through barriers. So one of the really fun things that you know we have on the program is a panel with some of our members talking about their experiences traveling as somebody with visual impairment. You know, we have uh, guide dog users. We have people like myself that are not completely blind. We have people that have even less eyesight than I do. So, you know, there's a spectrum there, different experiences to talk about. But we also have people coming in from, for example, um, the Department of Education, you know, teachers. We have people from Hopono, the vocational rehab here in Hawaii for people with visual impairments. So every year we, we change it up, but we also have, you know, important people in the community that are involved with Again, people with visual impairments, and they give us some updates about things that they're working on, things that they've done in the past year, and also what they plan to do in the coming year. There's so many things, and I've been to this event myself, so I can say that there is a lot of inspiration that comes from hearing about all of these activities and from hearing about the ways that people are getting support, the announcement at one point during the evening of the scholarship funding and the funding for Mm -hmm. different programs that occurs 
also quite inspirational. You can learn about both mm-hmm. registering for the event, and you need to RSVP by February 25th. And then yep. you can also learn about supporting the organization at this website, acb.org slash Hawaii, and that is American Council of the Blind that it stands for, acb.org slash Hawaii, to learn about supporting the organization for the event and beyond, and then go to the events tab there to RSVP. Saturday, March 5th, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., the theme this year, Traveling Through Barriers, and it is the 55th annual convention of the Hawaii Association of the Blind, virtually due to the pandemic. We've been talking with a member of the HAB, Tony Vega. Anything else going on at this that we need to pass along to folks or in general that you want to say? Of course, the convention is coming up, and that is our our big yearly event. But we're always active. We have monthly meetings. We have social events. And, of course, you know, as it becomes easier to do more in-person things, we plan to go back to that and, again, be active in the community, letting people know, you know, what we're working on. So we're always happy to bring in new people, new members, whether you're visually impaired or not. And we're always happy to start up new projects. And and as long as we can work on something together, we're happy to hear from you. (laughs) Tony Vega from the Hawaii Association of the Blind talking about the event Saturday, March 5th. Appreciate your time. Wishing you a whole bunch of success at it. Thank you for having me. And that was HPR's Dave Lawrence talking with Tony Vega with the Hawaii Association of the Blind. It is holding its 55th annual state convention on Saturday, March 5th. The deadline to register, though, is tomorrow, Friday. We will have the link on our conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, in Hawaii since 1909, providing home furnishings for the islands, from classic to contemporary to casual. Learn more online at cswoeandsons.com. Madam Sayak, you are not God. Vitriol against public servants is increasing. What impact does that have on who stays in politics and for the health of our democracy? You need to leave this town. We don't want you here. I'm Kimberly Atkinstore. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Sometimes the journey is the destination, but today's Backyard Quiz, the destination is the end of Highway 270 on the Big Island. As you drive north along the coast, scenic views go from black lava landscapes to green pastures, and the road ends at an overlook with gorgeous views into a verdant area below. The valley is known for its high winds, so keep your eyes peeled for the eel, the Hawaiian hawks who like to ride the currents. And once you take the hike down, you might also look for old metal landing tracks used by the military during World War II to practice amphibious operations. You can also continue the journey northward by hiking into the next valley via the Ohonokane Nui Trail. And if we've piqued your interest in the outdoors, then you'll want to check out Palolu Valley in the North Kohala District of Hawaii Island, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congrats to... Nick Francisco from Keaau, you are the winner. And thank you to Noelani Anderson for our quiz today. If you have an idea for a backyard quiz that you want to share, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. A quiet collaboration has been underway for a few months in central Oahu. Tom Linchenko of the Hawaiian Civic Club of Wahiwa and University of Hawaii professor Camilo Mora started planting thousands of native Hawaiian trees to help improve the watershed management at Kukani Loko, a sacred centuries-old birthplace of royalty. Over the winter break, they spent several Saturdays digging holes and planting seeds and saplings. HBR's Lillian Song sat down with the two to learn about the greening. Tom, you're a guardian of the Kukani Loko Birthstone State Monument, You're a generational steward, and you, along with other members of the Hawaiian Civic Club of Wahiawa, you take wonderful care of the undeveloped land full of historical and cultural significance. What are you dealing with as changing time and society affects this area? 
Well, we've gone in and had consultation efforts with our elected officials, you know, in making clearly understood what is the responsibility that they have in the community at large. We've worked with the Wahiwa Community Police Program to try and help those that are what they call houseless to be relocated to someplace that is safe for them and safe for the community. It's an ongoing process. You know, it's been going on for at least the last 25, 30 years to situate those persons and make them safe. Yeah. It's uh, a lot better now because people tend to respect once they can see that something is happening out there. So the reforestation program, the restoration of the hail, these things are being implemented slowly through the consensual master plan for the Kukane local birthstones under the Office of Wine Affairs. So hopefully maybe by June we'll have a scope of concept for the property and then slowly build out, you know, a welcome center for visitors, you know, maybe a well that we could have water on the property, create a reservoir. We're also looking at an ag trade center and then eventually uh, reforest the 36,000 acres between the Koalau and the Wainan mountain ranges to, to grow forests. The range shall come. A requirement for survival is water. This also institutes the potential of a watershed management program from the Koalau range through Kaukonahua stream out to Ki'iki'i at Kayapa Bay. So we can take on that challenge with our young folks to initiate the watershed program from the source at the ocean all the way up, you know, to the mountain source there. It's a lifetime, you know, assignment, you know. So hopefully our young people can grasp onto this understanding and not leave us, you know, once they, once they leave. You know, it's our future that goes with them. So, you know, it's incumbent upon us to reach out to them and engage with them. So hopefully our young folks can pick up the challenge and move forward. Mm. Well, you were actually doing a tree planting when the aha moment, the light bulb, went off for you. Well, I recall in about 2018, we had an invitation to meet Koa on the Big Island of Hawaii. There was a Koa tree planting under the Hawaiian Legacy Hardwoods. So when I went there, it was like amazing how all these core trees were replanted, I think, on about 2,000 acres of land. So at that point, you know, it was always on trigger, you know, that we needed to plant sandalwood because that is the, the dominant tree of the area of Waiawa. So when I came back home, you know, the Office of Foreign Affairs had 1,000 tree planting in 2019. And this became the trigger. If they go plant a thousand, let's go for two hundred thousand on their five hundred acres, and, and that would make one commitment, you know, to that restoration of a forest, you know. So we're not halfway there yet, but we get in there. You know, we just uh, completed about six hundred forty core trees on the property recently. So it's a beginning, but we are pushing to the sandalwood reforestation. I think that that would be the key. And to help shape that key of reforestation, Professor Camila Mora, you had the Carbon Neutrality Challenge with the aim to restore local ecosystems by offsetting carbon emissions with tree plantings. And Kukani Loco is just one of the sites you support. What has it been like working with Tom? One of the things that I find fascinating for me to learn from him, how this thing was used to look back in the day, imagine what he's telling you, you know, when he explains that used to be forest from one side of the mountains to the other side of the mountains, and now all what you see is a flat area. You had good imagination. You realize how beautiful this thing was used to look and how he, just the importance of this knowledge that is in the kupuna that would be nice for the younger generation to start getting a handle on because the reality is that we are losing those points of reference when our kupuna pass away and unfortunately with then is the motivation for us to just go and do more for the environment these trees that you're planting down the line once they're established once they're adult and they have these beautiful canopies going mm-hmm. i can just see that in my mind it's a beautiful <laughs> area yeah, right now that's what we had to work with, imagination. And in fact, every time that I go and take the volunteers every, anywhere on my planties, I normally like to engage the children there, you know, and, and I used to tell them, hey, man, 
think about this in 10, 20 years time, you and I are going to come together and we're going to put a hammock between that tree that you planted there and this tree that I'm planting here, you know, for you to start visualizing what, what this thing has to offer here. And they get super excited. I mean, the energy is super mind blowing. It's a collective group effort from the keiki to the kupuna. Everybody just really working toward that common goal. Professor Mora, what else can you share? I just want to say to all the people that is listening, please wait for our call because we're going to be knocking at your door for help. Once we overcome the challenges that need to be overcome, we're going to need your help. Right now, we already know very well that it's easy for a person to plant 10 trees. Even children in our groups, when they come, we figure out how to make them plant 10 trees. So my dream is this, taking just 10% of the population in Hawaii, that's 100,000 people. Every one of us planting 10 trees and there is our million trees. In a single day, we are not gonna be waiting for 2050. We are not gonna be waiting for no politicians. We are not gonna be waiting for climate change to come and hit us in the butt. We're gonna do this in one day, okay? And it can be done, but at that moment, we're gonna need the help of everybody because unfortunately, if I do it alone, it's gonna be impossible. But if everyone comes and do the tiny part, we can seriously overcome this challenge of planting a million trees in one day. Super easy. It never hurts to tell your friends your goals. And Tom, final thoughts from you. Well, just to remember that it's all about us. You know, we can't do this without each other. You know, so although there may be pains and sorrows, but the beauty of it as we sit and we watch the trees grow, that's going to be the ultimate. You know, once the trees establish themselves, they're on their own, just as we are. That was Tom Lachenko and UH Professor Camila Mora talking with HPR's Lillian Song. They are working toward a goal of planting 200,000 native hardwood trees in Wahewa's Kukani Loco Birthstone State Monument. They expect that at least 90% of the seeds in the young trees will survive. that wraps it up for us today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa sits in for an Aloha Friday show. You can call our talkback line, uh, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow with more of the conversation.